Welcome everybody, Andrew Holacek here. And uh, boy, I'm, I'm particularly excited about my guest um, for today, um, Richard Miller, who I had the wonderful good fortune of spending some time with in Santa Rosa um, a, a year and a half ago. Um, I was doing a Dream Yoga program and Richard was gracious enough to actually attend the darn thing. That's really impressive. And, and, then, and then we had a beautiful lunch together and I immediately fell in love with this amazing gentleman. Um, Richard, you know, your work has inspired me for the longest time and, and to actually meet you in person and realize you're, you're as genuine and elegant as you are and written in the spoken words, it really touched me. And so um, for our listeners, I want to introduce Richard formally by reading his bio and then, oh my gosh, we have so many common areas uh, where we can launch into, I've seen, I think, some fruitful discussion, so I can't wait. So here's Richard. Richard Miller, PhD, is a clinical psychologist, author, researcher, yogic scholar, and spiritual teacher who, for the past 47 years, has devoted his life to integrating Western psychology and neuroscience with the ancient wisdom teachings of yoga, tantra, advaita, Taoism, and Buddhism. Developer of the research-based program Integrative Restoration-IRES Yoga Nidra Meditation, Richard is a founding president of the IRES Institute, co-founder of the International Association of Yoga Therapists, past founding president of the Institute for Spirituality and Psychology. He is the author of IRES Meditation, the IRES Program for Healing PTSD, and Yoga Nidra, the Meditative Heart of Yoga. Richard leads retreats and trainings internationally, emphasizing enlightened living in daily life. And so, Richard, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Um, wow, where to start? Let's start with a personal question, if you don't mind. And that is, how did the um, rich topic of yoga nidra, and, and I will define that briefly, but I'm sure you're going to unpack it in, in greater detail, but for our listeners... Nidra is, is a, um, basically sleep, and yoga nidra is a, a sleep yoga, but as you'll see, it's much more than what you may think it is. So share with us a little bit how you found your way into this um, extraordinary discipline. Sure, happy to do, and first, just it's a delight to be here with you. As you were mentioning, we got together in Santa Rosa when you were giving one of your weekends on dream yoga and I was really delighted to be there and have some time with you and get to know you so I'm delighted to be here with you today fantastic uh, yoga nidra interesting it's thousands of years old it's an ancient form of meditative inquiry we might say and while nidra the word actually means sleep I take it to be a changing state of consciousness and the word yoga goes by many definitions. The one that I like to use is our embodied somatic experience of the underlying essence that connects the entire cosmos, I would say, that gives birth to all the expressions, you, me, the rocks, the trees, and the planets all around us. So yoga nidra for me means to have that embodied understanding of the unification of everything, their, their non-separateness, no matter the changing state of consciousness that we're in. 
So that could be states during waking, um, happiness, sadness, grief, anger, joy, or the states that arise during dreaming and dreamlessness, dream sleep, dreamless sleep. So yoga nidra is a meditation that helps us basically navigate all the changing states of consciousness, knowing ourselves as something that doesn't change, that's a constant. And I originally ran into the practice in 1970. Uh, when I was first in San Francisco, I was new to the Bay Area and I wanted to meet people. So I ended up in a yoga class trying to meet some people. And it turns out it was taught in silence. So I never met a soul during the 12 weeks of the class because we came in and left in silence. But at the end of the first class, I like to say I met myself. The teacher gave us what I now know was a rudimentary IRest or not IRest, but yoga nidra practice. And I had the most profound, I would say, experience of feeling myself as one with the entire universe. And walked out of the class as I went home just feeling like what just happened and how can I understand this and that launched me into the next what almost 50 years now studying the, the meditation and incorporating it into everything that I do it's been a marvelous journey wow that's that's uh, the, the resonance the confluence is already remarkable Richard because when I um had my first experience of transcendental meditation, which is, you know, was derived from the Hindu tradition. Um, a similar type of thing, I, I did TM initially as a way to work with uh, hypertension. I was a stressed out undergraduate doing a double degree in, in, in science and music and diagnosed with, uh, you know, high blood pressure. And so back then, um, there wasn't a whole lot of meditation on campus, so to speak, but I, I do remember reading some studies, preliminary studies about how TM could work with things like hypertension. And so I went to my first TM um, instruction section session and, um, you know, pure beginner's luck, I, I just descended through the mantra that was given to me into this, mm -hmm. you know, kind of uh, samadhi, this meditative absorption that prior to that time, I had no idea was even possible. And, and exactly like you, Richard, I, I came out of that space you know, enter, entered a state of utter non-thought, complete tranquility and peace, meditative absorption, and came out of it uh, just a completely different person and then spent the next 10 years, like you, trying to figure out what the heck was that? Yeah. How, how can I stabilize it? Where can I go with it? And, and what you say really resonates with me, um, and it, it's, it's highly resonant for our listeners with what we are exploring in our arena under the rubric of, of sleep yoga um, or what the Tibetans refer to as luminosity yoga, which is highly uh, analogous to what Richard is talking about and I'm sure what we'll be unpacking and that is about descending into that part of you that doesn't change, quite literally what the Buddhists refer to as the changeless nature. And I could not agree more with you, Richard, that by becoming one with yourself, you will find yourself becoming one with the cosmos, that they're fundamentally inseparable. And that I have discovered that the farther you go into yourself, um, into your body, actually, this idea of waking down, um, that you find that your body you know, becomes replaced with the body of the universe. You, you personally, quote unquote, become nothing. But in so doing, you, big you, um, becomes everything. And well, that's 
Yeah, that's the feeling I went when I walked into that first class feeling pretty much disconnected from myself and the world. And I walked out totally connected to myself and that sense of oneness with the entire cosmos. And it was an extraordinary life-changing event. Yeah, it's a twofer, isn't it? It's it's a major twofer. <laughs> yeah, it's a twofer. <laughs> not only not only do you find out who the heck you are, and John Kabat-Zinn says something so beautifully here. You know, John Kabat-Zinn, the founder of Mindful of Space Stress Reduction, he says, you know, when you when you discover who you are and what the mind is, you have beauty, the arts, poetry, music. If you don't discover who you are and what the mind is, you have Auschwitz. And um, I, I thought that was a really pointed way of talking about how important it is um, to, as, as, as um, I think it was Plato, you know, know thyself and, and the charter that the psycho-spiritual traditions have offered to you um, and also to me, I think it's just been one of the great gifts. So, well, you, you so, used an interesting word a few minutes ago or moments ago, you used the word waking down and I actually use it in four versions of that to me the first is waking in where we're really getting to know ourselves and the familiarity with our body our senses our emotions our thoughts so we really feel ourselves as an integrated human being the second part I think of is waking up or where we're really integrating this sense of unity with the cosmos. And then I think of waking down as that integration of that very transcendental view down into our very personal experience all day long, where we're really experiencing that sense of unit of consciousness, no matter who we're with or what we're doing. And then I have a fourth phase waking out where we take it into the workplace, our relationships and to me, that's where the real work is as we bring it into the everyday workplace. Yeah, and that's and that's what really impresses me about about what you're doing, Richard, is um, the extraordinary comprehensive quality of this journey that um, we go into ourselves to fundamentally come back out um, for the benefit of others. And and I'm so thrilled when I read over your work that you know, the kind of translational quality of your research, as scientists put it, that you're not just um, putting out data for publication and text, you're doing your research as a way to translate it literally into working with veterans and victims of PTSD and stress. And and so it, it, to me, it's a really inspiring way to conjoin not only psych, psych, uh, psychology and spirituality, but also those two in the service of the betterment of, of the world and the betterment of others. And to me, it's this kind of completely integrated kind of systemic approach that is um, quite inspiring and, and just certainly resonant with what we're trying to do with our little charter with my club um, and also with, you know, I could say the charter of my own life. And so, so just yeah, please say more, um, you know, about what, for instance, I rest is. Um, if, if you're comfortable sharing with our listeners, sure. Um, tell us a little bit about this, because the more I learned about it, the more fascinated and intrigued I became with it. Well, it, it made sense as I was studying in the 70s, this protocol I'll call Yoga Nidra. And it came from the Eastern tradition, which really don't address how to work with our emotions and thoughts. They're really talking about letting go of thoughts and then trying to find the more transcendental aspect of our nature. 
But it occurred to me that it was really important that we have that integration of both what the Eastern brings to us and what Western, say, psychology offers us in terms of becoming an integrated human being, not just a transcendent being. So as I was studying the teachings that I was getting from the East, and I had a number of teachers who were both here in the United States, and I was fortunate I traveled to India on a number of occasions and met some extraordinary teachers there, that I began to cull away, I would call the Eastern um, kind of archetypal aspects to the meditation practice. And I was looking at how could I bring this really to a Westerner? And two of my uh, Indian teachers both said, look, we're Indian, we're from a different culture, you're a Westerner, so you really need to make this your own and bring it to the West. So that's what I started to do in the 70s. And in the uh, 2004, I actually was approached by Walter Reed Army Medical Center, who asked if I would do a research study with uh, active duty coming back from the war fronts with tremendous post-traumatic stress. And so I entered into a study, but they asked if I would lose the name Yoga Nidra. I, I have a wonderful <laughs> video of a Marine saying, look, we're Marines. Uh, yoga is for sissies. We don't do meditation. Call it something else. Right. So I renamed it Integrative Restoration because I think it integrates our psychology and helps us really to become a grounded human being on friendly terms with our body, senses, and mind, and emotions. And restoration because I feel it restores this innate quality of underlying unit of consciousness. And back in 2004, everything was iPads and iPhones, so why not I rest with a small little eye that puts the sense of self in its proper position to this larger unitive consciousness. And the military loved that. They said, hey, we can do IRAS. So we entered into a study. It was so successful since 2006. Anybody going through their healing regimen at Walter Reed has access to this protocol I created. And then I went on to research it at Miami VA and Brook Army Medical Center and university setting. So I've been able to get research studies, fortunately, looking at how this particular program works with everything from post-traumatic stress to anxiety to sleep and resiliency and well-being. I even did a couple of studies with um, cello players to see if we can help them reduce their stress in their shoulders when they were uh, playing the cello, which successfully was the truth. Um, but the program, I really tried to look at how could I bring this to what I call the non-choir, because in the 70s, everybody who was coming to me was interested in meditation and yoga, but I was thinking this has far-reaching benefits, so I've been able now to bring it into homeless shelters, work with women rescued from human trafficking, veterans, children as young as three in schools to hospice and end-of-life care. And I call it I rest Yoga Nidra Meditation uh, for a reason. One is the military came back to me a couple of years after we started the study, and they said, you know, we like what you're doing, so you can call it anything you want. <laughs> so I like I rest because then I can go into a homeless shelter or a hospital, and I'm teaching I rest. 
if I go to a Buddhist meditation center, I teach meditation. And if I go into a yoga center, I'm teaching yoga nidra. The, the words just give me access to the community. Because if I go to a hospital and I say, I'm going to teach you yoga nidra, they're going to say, so what is that? But if I teach them the program as I rest, then they start to ask, well, where did it come from? And then I can talk about yoga nidra, but then we're all on the same page. So I think the wording is important. It gives us access to populations and communities I might not otherwise gain access to if I were just saying I was teaching meditation. Yeah, I mean, it's exactly the the brilliance that John Kabat-Zinn um, came up with when he discovered the extraordinary power of Buddhist meditation to work with chronic pain um, and realized that he couldn't approach it in exactly the same way you discovered using kind of classic nomenclature. And of course, then he came up with a more clinically oriented MBSR. Exactly. Uh, which is, uh, you know, it's completely analogous and, and, and good for you for having that kind of sensitivity. Because for me, Richard, this is the very definition of upaya or skillful means is, you know, not coming in like a bowling ball and, and either bowling people over or converting them to your ideologies and whatnot, but really listening um, and meeting people eye to eye where they're at, using the vocabulary that speaks to them. Um, and that's the way they, obviously the way they connect, they resonate and, and good for you for having that kind of sensitivity um, and obviously to, to great success. And so to whatever extent um, feels appropriate is can you give our listeners um, a sense of some of the stages of this kind yeah. of process? Well, the, the first thing is the emphasis is really on learning how to be with the changing states of consciousness in our body and our mind so that we're able to navigate them without getting caught in them. So one of the main principles underlying the practice is what I call welcoming. So we're learning how to be with whatever is arising not to try to change it or get rid of it, but to listen to it as a messenger that's trying to help us on our way through our life. So the first three aspects of the program, I, I've created it as a 10-step program that's embedded in a larger 38-stage map of meditation that comes from the ancient tradition that I'm following. But the first three steps of the program, as I've created it as a simple program that can be taken into hospitals or clinics or meditation centers. We're really looking at um, helping a person right from the start experience a sense of innate wholeness or well-being that's unshakable. I call it indestructible that we have within us, but we may have been encultured out of or through our life experiences forgotten, lost touch with. So I introduce that through a number of different um, inquiries, we might say, that are really trying to help a person really feel it in their body, a sense of essential wholeness, I call it, of being. And then out of that, helping a person feel the different intentions that are bringing them to meditation. So short term, what do they wish to get out of the meditation and then long term how would they like this to influence their overall life over the course of their entire lifetime so with that kind of ground or foundation the next two steps 
I call body sensing and breath sensing, where we're introducing different techniques to really awaken the intelligence of the body and help people really mine the information that's coming to us through our body somatically. So it's really a grounded somatic felt sense we're, we're developing through these two stages of the practice. Then we have two stages, one that addresses emotions and helping a person learn how to be with their emotions. And then another stage where we're working primarily with cognitions, thoughts, memories, beliefs, and imagery that otherwise people can get caught in, uh, ruminating in, recursively cycling around in. So we're teaching basically six ways of working with emotions and thoughts and memories to help break the kind of cycle that we get caught in in the thinking mind and really help move through them so that we're really responding to them and using them, as I said, as messengers to help us on our way. So like anger, taking anger or irritation, it's a messenger that's helping us potentially see an underlying expectation we might be having of how things should be, how we'd like them to be, but in fact, life is offering us something different. And so the anger, if we use it as a messenger, is helping us see the expectation. Then we let the expectation be set aside and we can meet life on its own terms. So we work with emotions, thoughts, and then we have a whole segment where we really try to mine joy mm-hmm. as a vitamin J, I call it, or a, an innate sense of well-being that's independent of our circumstance. So a lot of people know joy because they get a new car or they get a something to eat that's delicious. We're talking about joy that's innate in the body, that's independent of our circumstance, that we can feel whether we are feeling good and happy or we could feel that joy even in the midst of a difficult moment of grief or uh, sadness. And then we have a whole segment where we are developing what we call perspective or the ability to rest as unchanging awareness amidst these changing phenomena so that we're learning that we are something more than these changing circumstances and that perspective allows us to be with things in a way we might not ordinarily have been able to be with and the final stage is as one of my teachers said taking the car for a test drive we (laughs) learn the skills on the mat and then we take them for a test drive out into our relationships our work experiences out into the world and then go back and forth, back to the mat, relearning, going back out into life, putting them into practice. So it becomes, I call it a toolkit for life or the owner's manual we never got as kids that are teaching us how to navigate all these ins and outs of life. But once we've learned how to navigate life, then really this aspect of awakening to this deeper higher, whatever you want to say, consciousness that's unchanging, that really gives us a sense of an underlying unity with everything around us. And I like to say, because people ask, well, why would I want that? And I say, well, 
when you realize that everything you're looking at is essentially yourself in different clothing, while you can celebrate difference, you can no longer do violence or war because it doesn't make any sense anymore to go to war with yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just as a, an aside, when I, when I went to the military and they asked me if our soldiers do this program, what's going to happen? And I remember thinking to myself, do I tell them the truth? <laughs> and I realized they're going to find out anyway. And I said, well, some of them are going to drop their weapons because they realize the people on the other side of the battlefield are their cousins, uncles, aunts. They're, they're themselves in different clothing. The others are going to, as warriors who need to do a job, fight the battle, but not out of anger or hatred, but out of a job to do. And then as soon as it's over, they'll drop their weapons. They'll go across the battlefield and help the very people that they were just fighting against. And the head of the military who was in the meeting looked at me after I stopped talking, and he said, that's exactly what we want to hear. Oh, my goodness. And we got into a long, protracted conversation on meditation, the Bhagavad Gita, war, peace. It was extraordinary, actually, the hair on my arms and the back of my neck actually stood up as we were talking because I was so taken by his response to me. Oh my gosh, which is, I actually sense a chill up my back even you sharing that. that that's amazing. Wow, what a rich offering. I, I have some comments and also questions in relation to what you said here. First of all, thank you. One is, you know, in the vocabulary of what I'm referring to is the nocturnal meditations, which Richard, I, I define as, yes. uh, you know, lucid dreaming, dream mm-hmm. yoga, sleep yoga, and then bardo yoga. Um, the, you know, the fundamental theme is lucidity, which of course, as you know, is it's just this kind of code word for awareness. And so when you talk about your charter as being one of navigating states without being caught up in them, I mean, that is the precise definition of lucidity. Well, actually, I'm really excited about this as a potential conversation with you and I, because I'm aware, you know, most people come to these practices and they're just learning how to do life during the waking life, let alone dream. But we've noticed that there's a whole nother dimension to meditation that opens up at night or when we go to sleep. And I'd be curious your reflections, which is as I'm doing this practice and I actually teach it first lying down to people. And actually, Mm -hmm. I say this may be the only meditation you're being taught that I'm asking you to actually let the body go to sleep. And I'm aware that each of the states of consciousness during the waking life, sadness, anger, happiness, um, well-being, joy, they all have to me signatures in the body that we can learn how to recognize and then learn how to be with them and navigate them. But I'm finding the same thing at sleep. When each of the sleep stages starts, like the initial hypnagogia, when we get kind of weird imagery and we're starting to uh, step down into the first stage of sleep, to me it has its own signature that I've been able to recognize. And so by recognizing it, I can say, oh, here's hypnagogy and not get caught in it, but maintain what you're saying is that lucidity. And then watch as stage one and two and three and 
each of them for me has a signature that if we're able to recognize it, we don't get caught in it. And then, as you know, we can find ourselves totally lucid in the sleep state. And as I tell people in my classes, if you hear somebody snoring, just be aware it might be you, but don't try to wake yourself up. Just realize your body's sleeping in you and you're the one in whom the body is sleeping. You're not asleep. The body's asleep. Yeah, that's fantastic. And really what you're saying is, is completely dovetailing into what, we're, what you were talking about earlier. And that is that when we learn how to maintain lucidity through all states of consciousness as we go from gross to subtle to very subtle and you know i talk about this richard is replacing the western light switch model of consciousness where it's either awake asleep um you know alive dead yes no black white we're replacing that kind of gross linear model um western linear model with a eastern dimmer where we're just going from gross to subtle to very subtle mm -hmm. and then and then so by becoming lucid through the descent that you're referring to literally referred to as lucid sleep onset, then that dovetails back beautifully to what you are talking about earlier. That same proficiency then allows us to maintain lucidity or awareness and navigate all states of consciousness, even in, within the waking state. So we use this kind of bidirectional tenet where the lucidity that you're talking about, navigating states without being caught in them during the day, translates into a similar proficiency to maintaining lucidity um, through different states of consciousness altogether until you reach the fundamental point that, that you're referring to that I want to get back to, but I want to put a hold on for just a second because I think that is so subtle, deep, and profound that that will be our, our platform for our next set of um, discussions here. But what I wanted to further comment on, Richard, was how it is that these methods of inquiry that you're referring to are completely resonant with my experience in, in the Buddhist contemplative traditions I'm using insight meditations, analytic meditations, and the like, where it's so skillful to me that I sometimes think of it as the, the great masters, they're like very skilled attorneys, where they, they lead the witness with these incredibly powerful questions. Um, as you know, the Ramana Maharshi typified really as the archetypal um, question of his entire spiritual path, which is like, you know, who am I? And so by asking the right questions, the mind is led in the proper direction. And, and then that, that um, allows the discoverer to um, empower their discoveries, that they're not just being spoon-fed these realizations, they're actually being led into these realizations themselves. And that's where the juice comes from. That's where the real power comes from. And the fact that you... Thanks for listening. You can listen to the full interview by joining Nightclub, Lucid Dreaming and Dream Yoga Community. Just $1 for your first 30 days. Try it out. Click the website link in our profile to get started.